9. A pony, and the reason for its purchase, author's pony kicks him and breaks his arm, chastising the animal, and narrow escape from death, rider and pony a sorry sight, and an easy night, reappearance of malaria, author nearly forced to give in heavy rain on a difficult road, at Tashuit saying, chasing frightened pony in the dead of night, bad accommodation, lepers and leprosy, mining, at Gangti, two mandarins, and an amusing episode, laying foundation of a long illness, the Gangti suspension bridge, hard climbing, tiffin in the mountains, sudden ascents and descents, description of the country, tame birds and what they do, a non-enterprising community, pleasant traveling without perils, majesty of the mountains of Yunnan, whilst in this district, as will have been seen, one has to steel himself to face some of the most revolting sights it is possible to imagine. He is rewarded by the grandeur of the scenic pictures which mark the downward journey to Tong Fu. The stages to Tong Fu were as follows, length of height above stage sea level first day Tawin 70 Li, fourth second day Tashui Tseng 30, 9.300 feet third day Kang T 40, 4.400, fourth day Yi Chashin 70, 6.300, fifth day Hong Shi Ai 90, 6.800, sixth day Tong Shuan Fu 60, 7.250, the Jiao Tong Plateau, magnificently level, runs out past the picturesquely situated tower of Wan Hai Liu, from which one overlooks a stretch of water, a memorial arch, erected by the Li family of Zhao Tongfu, graces the main road farther on, and is probably one of the best of its kind in Yunnan, comparing favorably with the best to be found in Sichuan, where monumental architecture abounds. Perhaps the only building of interest in Zhao Tong is the ancestral hall of the wealthy family mentioned above, the carving of which is magnificent. At the end of the first day we camped at the Mohammedan village of Tawin, literally, Peach Garden. But the peach trees might once have been. Though now certainly they are not. It was cold when we left. 38 degrees F hard frost. All the world seemed buttoned up and great coated. The trees seemed wiry and cheerless. The legs of the pack horses seemed brittle. And I felt so. Breath issued visibly from the mouth as I trudged along. My boy and I nearly came to blows in the early morning. I wanted to lie on, he did not, if he could not entertain himself for half an hour with his own thoughts, I who could, thought it no fault of mine, I was a reasoning being, a rational creature, and thought it a fine way of spending a sensible, impartial half hour, but I had to get up, and then came the benumbed fingers, a quivering body, a frozen towel, and a floor upon which the mud was frozen stiff. Little did he know that he was pulling me out to the most eventful and unfortunate day of my trip. At Jiao Tong I had bought a pony in case of emergency one of those sturdy little brutes that never grow tired, cost little to keep, and are in excelled for the amount of work they can get through every day in the week. Its color was black, a smooth, glossy black the proverbial dark horse and when dressed in its English saddle and bridle looked even smart enough for the use of the distinguished traveler who smiled the smile of pleasant ownership as it was led on in front all day long, seeming to return a satanic grin for my foolishness at not riding it. You the first I saw of it was when it was standing full on its hind legs pinning a man between the railings and a wall in a corner of the mission premises. It looked well, truly. It was a blood beast. On the second day out, whilst walking merrily along in the early morning, the little brute lifted its heels, 
lodged them most precisely onto my right forearm with considerable force more forceful than affectionate sending the stick which I carried thirty feet from me up the cliffs, the limb ached, and I felt sick. My boy he had been a doctor's boy on one of the gunboats at Chunkin thought it was bruised, I acquiesced, and sank fainting to a stone. On the strength of my boy's diagnosis we rubbed it, and found that it hurt still more. Then diving into a cottage, I brought out a piece of wood, three inches wide and twenty inches long, placed my arm on it, bade my boy take off one of my patties from one of my legs, used it as a bandage, and trudged on again, not realizing that my arm was broken. In the evening I determined to chastise the animal in a manner becoming to my disgust. Mounting at the foot of a long hill, I laid on the stick as hard as I could, and found that my pony had a remarkable turn of speed. At the brow of the hill was a twenty-yard dip, at the base of which was a pond. Down, down, down we went, and, despite my full strength with the left arm at its mouth, the pony plunged in with a dull splash, only to find that his feet gave way under him in a clay bottom. He could not free himself to swim. Farther and farther we sank together, every second deeper into the mire, when just at the moment I felt the mud clinging about my waist, and I had visions of a horrible death away from all who knew me. I plunged madly to reach the side, with one arm useless. It is still to me the one great wonder of my life how I escaped. Nothing short of miraculous, one of the times when one feels a special protection of providence surrounding him, pulling the beast's head. After I had given myself a momentary shake, I succeeded in making him give a mighty lurch than another than another, and in a few seconds, after a terrible struggling, he reached the bank. We made a sorry spectacle as we walked shamefackedly back to the inn, under the gaze of half a dozen grinning rustics, where my man was preparing the evening meal. In the evening, on the advice of my general confidential companion, I submitted to a poultice being applied to my arm. It was bruised. So we put on the old-fashioned, hard-to-be-beaten poultice of bread. Whilst it was hot it was comfortable, when it was cold, I unrolled the bandage, threw the poultice to the floor, and in two minutes saw glistening in the moonlight the eyes of the rats which ate it. Then I bade sweet Morpheus take me, but, although the pain prevented me from sleeping, I remember fainting, how long I lay I know not, shuddering in every limb with pain and chilly fear. I at length awoke from a long swoon. Something had happened, but what? There was still the paper window, the same greasy saucer of thick oil and light being given by the same rush, the same rickety table, the same chair on which we had made the poultice but what had happened? I rubbed my aching eyes and lifted myself in a half-sitting posture a dream had dazzled me and scared my senses, and then I knew that it was malaria coming on again, and that I was once more her luckless victim, malignant malaria, mistress of men who court the under-tropic skies and who, like me, are turned from thee bodily shattered and whimpering like a child, how much, how very much hast thou laid up for thyself in Hades, thank heaven, I had superabundant energy and vitality, and despite contorted and distorted things dancing haphazard through my fevered brain, I determined not to go under, not to give in, my mind was a terrible tangle of combinations nevertheless intricate, incongruous, inconsequent, monstrous, but still I plodded on, for the next four days, with my arm lying limp and lifeless at my side, and with recurring attacks of malaria, I walked on against the greatest odds, and it was not till I had reached Tong Shuan Fu that I learned that the limb was fractured, men may have seen more in four days and done more and risked more, 
But I think few travelers have been called upon to suffer more agony than befell the lot of the man who was crossing China on foot. From Taoween there is a stiff ascent, followed by a climb up steep stone steps and muddy mountain banks through black and barren country. The morning had been cold and frosty, but rain came on later. A thick, heavy deluge, which swished and swashed everything from its path as one toiled painfully up those slippery paths, made almost inegotable. But my imagination and my hope helped me to make my own sunshine. There is something, I think, not disagreeable in issuing forth during a good honest summer rain at home with a Burberry well buttoned and an umbrella over one's head. Here in Yuanan a coat made it too uncomfortable to walk. And the terrific wine would have blown an umbrella from one's grasp in a twinkling. If we are in the home humor, in the summer, we do not mind how drenching the rain island and we may even take delight in getting our own legs splashed as we glance at the very touching stockings and the very gentle and sensitive legs of other weaker ones in the same plight. But here was I in a gale on the bleakest table and one can find in this part of you and man. And a sorry sight truly did I make as I trudged two steps forward, one step back in my bare feet, covered only with rough straw sandals, with trousers upturned above the knee with teeth chattering in malarial shivers, endeavoring between times to think of the pouring deluges of benignant enemy fertilizing fields, purifying the streets of the horrid little villages in which we spent our nights, refreshing the air, shall I ever forget the day, just before sundown, drenched to the skin and suffering horribly from the blues, we reached one single hut, which I could justly look upon as a sort of evening companion, for here was a fire albeit, a greenwood fire which looked gladly in my face, talked to me, and put life and comfort and warmth into me for the ten lee yet remaining of the day's hard journey, and at night, about 8.30 p.m. we at last reached the top of the hill, actually the summit of a mountain pass, at the dirty little village of Tashuit saying, not for long, however, could I rest, for I heard yells and screams and laughs, that pony again, every one of my men were afraid of it, for at the slightest invitation it pawed with its front feet and landed man after man into the gutter, and if that failed it stood upright and cuddled them around the neck. Now I found it had run saddle, bridle and all and none volunteered to chase. So at 9.30, weary and bearing the burden of a terrible day, which laid the foundation of a long illness to be recorded later, I found it my unpleasant duty to patrol the hill from top to bottom, lighting my slippery way with a Chinese lantern. Chasing the pony silhouetted on the skyline. Tashuitsetting is a dreary spot with no inaccommodation at all. Via place depopulated and laid waste. Gloomy and melancholy. I managed, however, after promising a big fee, to get into a small mud house, where the people were not unkindly disposed. I ate my food, slept as much as I could in the few hours before the appearing of the earliest dawn on the bench allotted to me feeling thankful that to me had been allowed even this scanty lodging, but I could not conscientiously recommend the place to future travelers a dirty little village with its dirty people and its dirty atmosphere. At the top of the pass the wine nearly removed my ears as I took a final glance at the mountain refuge. Mountains here run southwest and northeast, and are grand to look upon. The poorest people were lepers, the beggars were all dead long ago. In Yunnan province leprosy afflicts thousands. A disease which the Chinese, not without reason, dread terribly, for no known remedy exists. Burning the patient alive, which used often to be resorted to, is even now looked upon as the only true remedy. Cases have been known where the patient, having been stupefied with opium, 
has been locked in a house, which has then been set on fire, and its inmate cremated on the spot. Mining used to be carried on here, so they told me, but I was not long in concluding that, whatever was the product, it has not materially affected the world's output, nor had it greatly enriched the laborers in the field. When I got into civilization I found that coal of a sulfurous nature was the booty of ancient days. There may be coal yet, as is most probable, but the natives seem far too apathetic and weary of life to care whether it is there or not. Passing Tashuit saying, the descent narrows to a splendid view of dark mountain and green and beautiful valley. We were now traveling away from several ranges of lofty mountains, whose peaks appeared vividly above the drooping rain-filled clouds onwards to a range immediately opposite, up whose slopes we toiled all day, passing en route only one uninhabited hamlet, to which the people flee in time of trouble, after a weary tramp of another twenty-five league you and manly, mind you, the most unreliable quantity in all matters geographical in the country I asked irritatedly, as all travelers must have asked before me, then, in the name of heaven, where is Kangti? W. It should come into view behind the terrible steep decline when one is within only about a hundred yards. It is roughly four thousand feet below Tashuit saying, Kangti is an important stopping place, with but one forlorn street, with two or three forlorn inns, the best of which has its best room immediately over the filthiest stables, emitting a stench which was almost unbearable, that I have seen in China. It literally suffocates one as it comes up in wafts through the wide gaps in the wood floor of the room. There are no mosquitoes here, but of a certain winged insect of various species, whose distinguishing characteristics are that the wings are transparent and have no cases or covers. There was a formidable army. I refer to the common little fly. There was the house fly, the horse fly, the dangerous blue bottle, the impecunious blow fly, the indefatigable buzzer, and others. One's delicate skin got beset with flies, they got in one's ears, in one's eyes, up one's nose down one's throat, in one's coffee, in one's bed, they bade fair to devour one within an hour or two, and brought forth inward curses and many swishes of the kerchief, the village seemed a death trap, glancing comprehensively at one another as I entered the higher end of the town, a party of reveling tea drinkers hastily pulled some cash from their satchels to settle accounts, and made a general rush into the street, where they awaited noisily the approach of a strangely wondrous and imposing spectacle, one that had not been seen in those parts for many days. The tramper, tired as he could be, at length approached, but the crowd had increased so enormously that the road was completely blocked. Tradesmen with their portable workshops, peddlers with their cumbersome gear and packed horses could not pass, but had to wait for their turn. There were not even any tortuous by streets in this place whereby they might reach their destination. Children lost themselves in the crush, and went about crying for their mothers. A party of travelers, newly arrived from the south by caravan route, got wedged with their worn-out horses and mules in the thick of the mob, and could not move an inch. As far as the eye could reach the blue-clad throng heaved restlessly to and fro under the blaze of the brilliant sun which harassed everyone in the valley, and, moving slowly and majestically in the midst of them all, came the foreigner, as they caught sight of me, my sandaled feet, and the retinue following on wearily in the wake. The populace set up an ecstatic yell of ferocious applause and turned their faces towards the inn, in the doorway of which one of my soldier men was holding forth on points of more or less delicacy respecting my good or bad nature and my British connection. At that moment, 
the huge human mass began to move in one predetermined direction, and then a couple of mandarins in their chairs joined the swarming rabble. I had to sit down on the step for five minutes whilst my boy, with commendable energy, cleared these two mandarins, who had come from Chentiu and were on their way to the capital, out of the best room, because his master wanted it. As he finished speaking, there came a loud crashing noise and a shout my pony had landed out just once again, and banged in one side of a chair belonging to these traveling officials. They met me with noisy and derisive greetings, which were to return with a straight and penetrating look. No less than fifty degrees was the thermometrical difference in Tashuitseng and Kangti. Here it was stifling. Cattle stood in stagnant water. Ducks were envied. My room with the sun on it became intolerable. And I sought refuge by the river. My butter was too liquid to spread. Coolies were tired as they rested outside the tea houses. Having not a cash to spend, my pony stood wincing, giving sharp shivers to his skin, and moving his tail to clear off the flies and his hind legs to clear off men. As for myself, I could have done with an iced soda or a claret cup. Very early in the morning, despite malaria shivers, I made my way over the beautiful suspension bridge which here graces the new land, ex-attributary of the Yangtze, up to the high hills beyond. This bridge at Kangti is 150 feet by 12, protected at one end by a couple of monkeys carved in stone, whilst the opposite end is guarded by what are supposed to be, I believe, a couple of lions and not a bad representation of them either, seeing that the workmen had no original near at hand to go by. From here the ascent over a second range of mountains is made by tortuous paths that wind along the sides of the hills high above the stream below, and at other times along the riverbed. The river is followed in a steep ascent, a sort of climbing terrace, from which the water leaks in delightful cascades and waterfalls. A four-hour climb brings one, after terrific labor, to the mouth of the picturesque pass of Yakaotang at 7.500 feet. In the quiet of the mountains I took my midday meal, there was about the place an awe-inspiring stillness. It was grand but lonely, weird rather than peaceful, so that one was glad to descend again suddenly to the river tracing it through long stretches of plain and barren valley, after which narrow paths lead up again to the small village of Yichashin, considerably below Yakaotang. It is the sudden descents and ascents which astonish one in traveling in this region, and whether climbing or dropping, one always reaches a plain or upland which would delude one into believing that he is almost at sea level, were it not for the towering mountains that all around keep one hemmed in in a silent stillness, and the rarefied air, Yichashin. For instance, standing at this altitude of considerably over 6.000 feet, is in the center of a tableland, on which are numerous villages, around which the fragrance of the broad bean in flower and the splendid fertility now and again met with makes it extremely pleasant to walk it is almost a series of English cottage gardens. Here the weather was like July in England or what one likes to imagine July should be in England dumb, dreaming, hot, lazy, luxurious weather in which one should do as he pleases, and be pleased with what he does. As I toiled along, my useless limb causing me each day more trouble, I felt I should like to lie down on the grass, with stones twixt head and shoulders for my pillow, and repose, as nature was reposing, in sovereign strength. But I was getting weaker, I saw, as I passed, gardens of purple and gold and white splendor, the sky was at its bluest, the clouds were to fall, snowy, mountainous, then on again to varying scenes, inns were not frequent, and were poor and wretched, 
the country was all red sandstone, and devoid of all timber, till, descending into a lovely valley, the path crossed an obstructing ridge, and then led out into a beautiful park all green and sweet, the country was full of color, it put a good taste in one's mouth, it impressed one as a heaven-sent means of keeping one cheerful in sad dilemma, the gardens, the fields, the skies, the mountains, the sunset, the light itself all were full of color, and earth and heaven seemed of one opinion in the harmony of the reds, the purples, the drabs, the blacks, the browns, the bright blues, and the yellows, birds were as tame as they were in the great beginning, they came under the table as I ate, and picked up the crumbs without fear, peasant people sat under great cedars, planted to give shade to the travelers, and bade one feel at home in his lonely pilgrimage, then one felt a peculiar feeling this feeling will arise in any traveler when, surmounting some hill range in the desert road, one descries, lying far below, and bosomed in its natural bulwarks, the fair village, the resting place, the little dwelling place of men, where one is to sleep, but when towards nightfall, as the good red sun went down, I was led, weary and done up, into one of the worst inns it had been my misfortune to encounter, a thousand other thoughts and feelings united in common anathema to the unenterprising community. Tea was bad, rice we could not get, and all night long the detestable smells from the wood fires choked our throats and blinded our eyes, glad, therefore, was I despite the heavy rain, to take a hurried and early departure the next morning, descending a thousand feet to a river, rising quite as suddenly to a height of 8.500 feet. Now the road went over a mountain broad and flat, where traveling in the sun was extremely pleasant or, rather, would have been had I been fit, packed horses, laden clumsily with their heavy loads of puerty, Manchester goods, oil and native exports from Yunnan province, passed us on the mountainside, and sometimes numbers of these willing but ill-treated animals were seen grazing in the hollows, by the wayside, their backs in almost every instance cruelly lacerated by the continuous rubbing of the wooden frames on which their loads were strapped. For cruelty to animals China stands uneasy first, love of animals does not enter into their sympathies at all. I found this not to be the case among the Miao and the Ipian, however, and the tribes across the Yangtze below Jiaotong, locally called the Papiu, are, as a matter of fact, fond of horses, and some of them capable horsemen. The journey across these mountains has no perils. One may step aside a few feet with no fear of falling a few thousand. A danger so common in most of the country from Suifu downwards. The scenery is magnificent range after range of mountains in whatever direction you look. Nothing but mountains of varying altitudes. And the patches of wooded slopes. Alternating with the red earth and more fertile green plots through which streams flow. With rolling waterfalls. Picturesque nooks and winding pathways make pictures to which only the gifted artist's brush could do justice, often, gazing over the sunlit landscape, in this land, south of the clouds, one is held spellbound by the intense beauty of this little known province, and one wonders what all this grand scenery, untouched and unmarred by the hand of man, would become were it in the center of a continent covered by the ubiquitous globe trotter, no country in the world more than West China possesses mountains of combined majesty and grace, rocks, everywhere arranged in masses of a rude and gigantic character, have a ruggedness tempered by a singular airiness of form and softness of environment, in a climate favorable in some parts to the densest vegetation, and in others wild and barren, 
one is always in sight of mountains rising to 14,000 feet or more, and constantly scaling difficult pathways 7 or 8 or 9,000 feet above the sea, and in the loneliness of a country where nothing has altered very much the handiwork of God, and awe-inspiring silence pervades everything, bold, gray cliffs shoot up here through a mass of verdure and of foliage, and their white cottages, perched in seemingly inaccessible positions, glisten in the sun on the colored mountain sides, you saunter through stony hollows, along straight passes, traversed by torrents, overhung by high walls of rocks, now winding through broken, shaggy chasms and huge, wandering fragments, now suddenly emerging into some emerald valley, where peace, long established, seems to repose sweetly in the bosom of strength, everywhere beauty alternates wonderfully with grandeur, valleys close in abruptly, intersected by huge mountain masses, the stony water-worn ascent of which is hardly passable, yes, Yunnan is imperatively a country first of mountains, then of lakes, the scenery, embodying truly alpine magnificence with the minute sylvan beauty of Killarney or of Devonshire, is nowhere excelled in the length and breadth of the empire, footnotes, footnote you, the incredulous of my readers may question, and rightly so, then where did he get his saddle? So I must explain that I met just out of Sui for a Danish gentleman also a traveler who wished to sell a pony and its trappings, as I had the arrangement with my boy that I would provide him with a conveyance, and did not like the idea of seeing him continually in a chair and his wealthy master trotting along on foot. I bought it for my boy's use. He used the saddle until we reached Jiaotong. Footnote W, pronounced Jiangdi, famous throughout western China for its terrible hill one of the most difficult pieces of country in the whole of the west. Footnote X, this river, the Niuelan, comes from near Yanglin, one day's march from Yuanmanfu. It is being followed down by two American engineers as the probable route for a new railway, which it is proposed should come out to the Yangtze some days north of Gangti. Chapter XII, Yuanman's Checkered Career, Switzerland of China, at Hong Shihai, China's Golden Age in the Past. The conservative instinct of the Chinese, how to quiet coolies, roads, dangers of ordinary travel in wet season, Kanshan and its mines, Tong Shuanfu, an important mining center, English and German machinery, methods of smelting, Protestants and Romanists in Yunnan, arrival at Tong Shuanfu, missionary set author's broken arm, trio of Europeans, author starts for the provincial capital, abandoning purpose of crossing China on foot. Arm in splints. Curious incident. At Lytiopo. Malaria returns. Serious illness of author. Delirium. Devotion of the missionaries. Death expected. Innkeeper's curious attitude. Recovery. After effects of malaria. Patient stays in Tong Shuanfu for several months. Then completes his walking tour. Yuan Man has had a checkered career ever since it became a part of the empire. In the 13th century Kublai Khan. The invincible warrior annexed this Switzerland to China, and how great his exploits must have been at the time of this addition to the land of the Manchus might be gathered from the fact that all the tribes of the Siberian ice fields, the deserts of Asia, together with the country between China and the Caspian Sea, acknowledged his potent sway or at least so tradition says, she is sometimes right. My journey continuing across more undulating country brought me at length to Hongxiai Redstone Cliff. A tiny hamlet hidden away completely in a deep recess in the mountainside, settled in a narrow gorge, the first house of which cannot be seen until within a few yards of entry, in accommodation, as was usual, 
was by no means good. It is characteristic of these small places that the greater the traffic the worse, invariably, is the accommodation offered. Travelers are continually staying here, but not one Chinese in the population is enterprising enough to open a decent inn. They have no money to start it, I suppose, but it is true of the Chinese, to a greater degree than of any other nation, that their golden age is in the past. Sages of antiquity spoke with deep reverence of the more ancient ancients of the ages, and revered all that they said and did, and the rural Chinese today says that what did for the sages of olden times must do for him today. The conservative instinct leads the Chinese to attach a new importance to precedent, and therefore the people at Hongxiai, knowing that the village has been in the same pitiable condition for generations, live by conservatism, and make no effort whatever to improve matters. Fire in the inn was kindled in the hollow of the ground. There was no ventilation, the wood they burned was, as usual, green, smoke was suffocating. My men talked well on into the night, and kept me from sleeping. Even if pain would have allowed me to, I spoke strongly, and they, thinking I was swearing at them, desisted for fear that I should heap upon their ancestors a few of the reviling thoughts I entertained for them. I should like to say a word here about the roads in this province, or perhaps the absence of roads, they had been execrable. The worst I had met, aggravated by heavy rains, with all the reforms to which the province of Yuan Man is endeavoring to direct its energies. It has not yet learned that one of the first assets of any district or country is good roads, but this is true of the whole of the Middle Kingdom. The contracted corridors in which the Chinese live compel them to do most of their work in the street, and, even in a city provided with but the narrowest passages, these slender avenues are perpetually choked by the presence of peripatetic vendors of every kind of article of common sale in China, and by itinerant craftsmen who have no other shop than the street. In the capital city of the province, even, it is a matter of some difficulty to the European to walk down the rough paved street after a shower of rain. So slippery do the slabs of stone become, and he has to be alive always to the lumbering carts, whose wheels are more solid than circular, pulled by bullocks as in the days long before the dawn of the Christian era. The wider the Chinese street the more abuses can it be put to, so that travel in the broad streets of the towns is quite as difficult as in the narrow alleys and as these streets are never repaired, or very rarely, they become worse than no roads at all that island in dry weather. This refers to the paved road, which, no matter what its faults, is certainly passable, and in wet weather is a boon. Their island however, another kind of road a mud road, and with a vengeance muddy, an ordinary mud or earth road is usually only wide enough for a couple of coolies to pass, and in this province, as it is often necessary especially in the Yuan Manfu district for one cart to pass another. The farmer, to prevent trespass on his crops, digs around them deep ditches, resembling those which are dug for the reception of gas mains. In the rainy season the fields are drained into the roads, which at times are constantly under water, and beyond Yuan Manfu. On my way to Tailifu, I often found it easier and more speedy to tramp bang across a rice field, taking no notice of where the road ought to be. By the time the road has sunk a few feet below the level, 